Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, if you're a, a guest here this morning, or, or maybe if you're joining us online for the first time, I just want to say welcome to you, and I also want to let you know that uh, this fall we have been in a sermon series uh, in the book of Joshua, uh, an Old Testament books. Now, there are 66 different books in the Bible, and there's all kinds of literature. As you read through it, you'll find that some of those books are filled with poetry. Some are brief letters that were written. The book of Joshua is in a literary form that we call a narrative history. So it's a, it's a history book. And uh, as I was preparing for this message and uh, talking with my wife, Linda, trying to think, you know, what are some other examples of narrative histories? Linda kind of jokingly said, well, I, I think I might know what the shortest form of a narrative history is. And uh, I, said, I said, what would that be? She said, uh, an epitaph. So, you know, we're, we're all familiar with these, right? Just something brief from the history of a person's life. This person evidently loved wild animals and helped set up a, a nature preserve. So I thought I would start out this message with some examples of personal narrative histories, and then we'll look at a very different example of a narrative history in the book of Joshua. So supposedly, the internet says that all of these actually appeared on gravestones, and uh, if it's possible to get the slides up on the confidence monitor, I would feel more confident preaching today. Thank you. But let's take a look at a few of these. Uh, here's one. Here lies the body of our Anna done to death by a banana. It wasn't the fruit that laid her low, but the skin of the thing that made her go. <laughs> Here's one from the days of the Wild West. Here lies less more. Four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. One more. Pun intended there, all right? One more. Here lies Fred the dentist in the biggest cavity he ever filled. <laughs> so look, the book of Joshua is a slightly longer narrative history than these are. There's 24 chapters to it. It wouldn't fit on a tombstone, would it? But like an epitaph, it's telling us something important about the life of Israel. It's telling us about a moment in their history when they finally entered into the promised land of Canaan, this homeland that God had promised to them. So the book of Joshua is, first of all, a history book. It is that, but it's also a history book with a distinct theological purpose. This book is telling us about an important aspect of God's character. And here's what it is. God is faithful. Our God delivers on his promises. You see, way back in Genesis 12, so near the beginning of the Old Testament, God promised a man named Abraham that he and his descendants would be given this particular land as a place for them to live. Now, the descendants of Abraham were Israel. And God makes this same promise generation after generation to this people. Now... 500 years later, in the book of Joshua, that promise is being fulfilled. So here's the bottom line message of the book of Joshua. 
Our God is a promise keeper. He can be trusted. And because he can be trusted, we can fully yield ourselves to his will for our lives. Now, in today's message, we're moving into the second half of the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua conveniently breaks into two major parts, divided right in the middle. So the first 12 chapters are speaking about the Israelites' conquest of the Promised Land. That's why Carl's had some difficult sermons to preach in the last few weeks about all of these wars. Then the second half of the book that we're beginning today speaks about that land being divided up among the 12 tribes of Israel. Each one receives a share of the land, what the Bible refers to as an inheritance. So what that means is the fighting is done for now. Now, it doesn't mean all the Canaanites have been driven out of the land. But Israel has secured more than a foothold. So they can start the process of settling into the land. And the first step was to divide the land among the tribes. So much of the second half of the book follows this repeating pattern. And here's the pattern. A tribe is named. And then the boundaries of the land that they are being given are described in detail. Sometimes the major towns are mentioned also. And then the next tribe is named, and the same formula is followed. And then the next tribe is named, and the same. So, you know, after this happens a couple times, you go, I kind of get where this is going. But it doesn't stop. It keeps going through all 12 tribes, you know. So I think for most modern readers, this gets maybe a little bit stale, if we're honest now. I recognize if you're a little bit nerdy about, you know, the geography and place names of ancient Israel, this might be really interesting. There are some people who are. Like right now, I'm having this vision of a seminary professor's face. He definitely fit that category. Okay, not Dr. Blomberg. Don't everybody look at Greg here. Someone else. Okay. But for most people... This kind of has a hard time holding our attention. So if you happen to have your quiet times in this section of the book of Joshua, it might actually be a quiet time (laughs) where you're having a hard time staying awake. But lest you be tempted to just skip over all this repetition and jump right to the conclusion of the book, the writer of the book of Joshua keeps you engaged. And here's how he does it. While you're plowing through this repetition, every once in a while, you don't know when it's coming, he'll tell an interesting side story. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, a side story about a man named Caleb. Now, Caleb was a leader in the tribe of Judah. And so this little story about Caleb gets inserted into the text right before the description of the land that is given to Judah, And the theme of this little story ties directly into the major theme of the book, that God is a promise keeper, so we can yield ourselves to him and follow him wholeheartedly because God had made a promise to Caleb 45 years earlier. And that promise is about to be fulfilled at this point in the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 14, I'll put the text up on the screen. Also, we'll begin with verse 6. Here's what it says. 
Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses the man of God at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So in this text, Joshua is referring to an earlier event. So here's what had happened. When the Israelites were freed from their slavery in Egypt, they were led out into the desert, the wilderness of Sinai Peninsula, and the first major thing that they did was to meet with God on a mountaintop, or Moses did. You remember this? Moses going up and down that mountain. This is where God gives the people his laws for living. A covenant is established. Then after that, God tells them to move on. Now they're actually headed toward the promised land of Canaan. The community stops at this place called Kadesh. We're right at the southern edge of the promised land. And here, Moses chooses 12 men. Why 12? Well, there was a one guy representing each of the 12 tribes. And these guys are sent off on a mission. It's a reconnaissance mission. They're spying out the land to bring back a report to Moses and other leaders. Presumably, it's going to be information that's going to help them as they go in to take the land. And this story about the 12 spies is told in two places in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses retells this story. The book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, have a slightly longer account. So here's what we need to realize. This is where we first meet Caleb, by the way. He's one of the 12 spies. Joshua's one of the 12 spies, too. But as we read these stories, we need to remember that when the Israelites left Egypt, there was no doubt in anybody's mind as to where they were ultimately headed. God had been promising for generations that he was going to give them the land of Canaan. When this whole thing started with Moses in the book of Exodus prior to their freedom, God told them, here's where we're going. It's about to happen now. And this generation, in the process of leaving Egypt and moving through that wilderness, had probably seen a more awesome display of God's presence and power and promise-keeping ability than any generation that's ever lived. Stop it. Stop and think about this. They saw God bring the great plagues upon Egypt. They saw the Red Sea divided so they could make their escape on dry ground. They saw God single-handedly defeat the most powerful army on earth at that time, the Egyptian army. And then when God took them out in the wilderness, God led them, a visible manifestation of God leading them. Wouldn't that be nice? How would you like that in your life? You can see God moving before you. And God provided miraculously for them, giving them food in the desert. So we have all that as background. Now here's that same community 
at Kadesh, and they've sent these 12 spies into the land that God is giving them. They were gone for a long time. The Bible says 40 days. It just means a long time, at least weeks, right? And then one day, somebody spots 12 men on the horizon. And can you imagine the excitement that would start to build in the community as they, as they count them off and all 12 are returning safely? And here's what happened. The book of Numbers chapter 13. The spies get back and 10 of them say, we can't do it, guys. They essentially said, it's too difficult and it's too scary. And now all of that excitement goes away and it's replaced by growing fear that's spreading in the community. And it's here that Joshua, excuse me, Caleb stands up. Joshua's also standing. Caleb stands up and he addresses the community. And here's what he says in Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. Caleb says, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. And what I want you to see is that these words of Caleb are not rooted in bravado. They're rooted in God's ability to keep his promises. They're rooted in God's track record. He's just shown that he's a powerful God. He's just defeated the Egyptian army. He's just shown how much he loves Israel by caring for them in the wilderness. Based on God's proven character. Caleb says, we can do this. We can certainly do this. But unfortunately, 10 of those 12 spies did not share Caleb's faith. And verse 32 of Numbers chapter 13 says, now they start spreading a bad report about the land. And now we shift from first excitement, then to fear. Now we shift to active rebellion. The whole community is drawn into this. They say, we're going to find new leaders, and we're going to go right back to Egypt. Now God has had enough. And God's glory appears in their midst, and God is so angry with this denial of who he is in this rebellion that he's prepared to just destroy the whole community at that moment, just start over again with Moses. But Moses intercedes for the people, prays for forgiveness and mercy. Here's what God says in Numbers chapter 14. He says, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me these 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers no one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. They were not destroyed at that moment, but this generation got what they asked for. They refused the gift of the promised land. The Lord said, okay, I'll give you what you want. They turned and they spent the next 40 years wandering around the desert till every adult, except for Caleb and Joshua, had passed on. But God continues here. He says this, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. So God promises Caleb because he was devoted to the Lord. He promises Caleb and his descendants that they're going to have a 
an inheritance, a special inheritance in this land. So that's the background. Now we go back to Joshua chapter 14. We have to fast forward 45 years. In that 45 years, that disobedient generation have all perished. Now their children, along with Caleb and Joshua, have gone into the land. First half of the book, they fought these battles. They've secured a good chunk of the land. Now Caleb stands before Joshua, reminding him of God's promise spoken through Moses. So as we read now further into chapter 14 of Joshua, I want us to focus in on Caleb. What was it about this person that was so pleasing to God? What can we learn from his example? And what I want to do is just to make several observations about Caleb as we work our way through the text this morning. So here's my first observation about Caleb. Caleb viewed problems against the backdrop of God's promises. He viewed problems against the backdrop of God's promises. Here's what we learn from Caleb in contrast to the ten spies. Problems without God's promises produce fear. Problems in the light of God's promises produce faith. Looking at verse 7 again. Caleb had said, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. Now what does Caleb mean when he says he brought back a report according to his convictions? Stop and think about this. All 12 spies had seen exactly the same thing. But they reached different conclusions. They reached their conclusions based on their convictions. Caleb's convictions caused him to look at these circumstances through the lens of what he believed was true about God. He believed God was a promise keeper. He believed God was powerful. He believed God loved Israel. And so for Caleb, he, the most certain thing, the most obvious thing, the safest thing was to move forward into the land. The most dangerous thing to Caleb would have been to disobey this God and stay right where they were. So let me ask you, what challenging circumstances are you facing in your life today? Now, thankfully, not all of us are in the throes of a crisis at this moment. But some of us are. Some of us are facing uncertainties in life that are producing fears. Others of us are suffering right now. I know others of you who have experienced great loss in the last few weeks and months. How are we to think about the kinds of problems and challenges that we so often face in our lives? So I don't think the answer is to 
ignore our problems, to pretend that they're not really there, not a big deal, as if denying our problems is somehow more spiritual or pleasing to God. The answer is not making less of our problems. The answer is making more of our God. The answer is recognizing the sufficiency of our God, seeing God's resources, and then inviting God into our troubled lives. This is what Caleb did. He saw these problems. I don't think he denied them, but he saw them in the light of God's promises. Here's a second observation I'd like to make this morning about Caleb. Caleb's heart was yielded to God. He followed God wholeheartedly. Picking up in the second half of verse 8, Caleb says, I, however, follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. The opposite of wholeheartedly is half-heartedly. Right? To do something half-heartedly means you don't really care. You don't really give it your best. When I was in college, one summer I, I worked in a factory. And after I'd worked there for a couple weeks, another employee came up to me and he said, uh, John, we need you to slow down. And I, I learned through him that evidently management was able to track the piece count that was done by each employee. And uh, evidently he thought that I was making them look bad. And I, I said, I'm sorry. I said, my intent was not to embarrass anybody. I did not even know that they were tracking things. I, I told him, I said, you know what I found is that if I just work hard, if I kind of give it my best, it makes the time pass really quickly. And his response to me was something like, an hour still has 60 minutes in it, whether you work hard or not. Okay, evidently, that guy preferred to do his work half-heartedly instead of giving it his best. Now, I think that we can do the same kind of thing when it comes to following the Lord. We can be obedient when it's convenient. We can act like a Christian, but only when we're around our Christian friends. We can say we trust God when things are going great, but then choose not to trust God when we hit things that are difficult in our lives. On multiple occasions, Jesus told his disciples, he's not looking for half-hearted followers. And the leader, Joshua, in this book says essentially the same thing. Toward the end of the book, he's speaking to the whole community of Israel, and he exhorts them with these words. Chapter 22, verse 5, he says, But be very careful to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Caleb was wholeheartedly devoted to following God. The last observation I want to make about Caleb is this. Caleb was a finisher. 
He remained devoted to following God until the very end of his life. Now, Caleb's devotion was tested. And I'm not talking about when when he and Joshua stood up to peer pressure and disagreed with the ten spies. I'm talking about what came after that. Caleb was literally standing at the edge of the promised land. He was willing to go in. He was ready to obey. And then he had to turn and spend 40 years of his life wandering in the desert with a disobedient generation. Have you ever thought about what that must have been like for Caleb? 40 years. Did Caleb decide along the way that this wasn't worth it? Did he decide to just kind of check out and toss his faith when he had to spend what were probably some of the best years of his life wandering in the desert? Friends, there's a lot of people that have checked out of their faith because something didn't go right in their life. Did Caleb grow angry? Did he grow bitter toward God because he was having to suffer when he was the one who was obedient? How did Caleb handle massive disappointment when life certainly didn't turn out as he had expected? How did he do with his devotion? Well, let's read on in verse 10. Caleb says this to Joshua. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses and while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there, and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. That's what it means to be a finisher. Actively pursuing God's desires into the later years of life in spite of difficult circumstances. Hey, let's just face the facts. There are plenty of things that can derail us in our Christian lives. I think for most people, it's, it's things that they, they didn't expect, they didn't anticipate. Let me just see if I can name a few of them as examples. Unforeseen issues with our children, or maybe our parents. Things we didn't expect that happened in our careers with our finances, unforeseen, unwanted issues that occur in our marriages. Have I missed any? Oh, yeah. And then there's unforeseen issues that come up with our health and regrets and disappointments 
and addictions and bad choices. We could list more. How many of these things could you put a check mark next to? And if you don't have any check marks, you probably just haven't lived long enough. <laughs> because life is filled with potholes, the kind that are so big that they can knock you off course. There's a guy that was going to work one morning. He was walking to work and he stopped when he saw this elderly lady standing dangerously close to the edge of an enormous pothole. I mean, this was more like a sinkhole. And as he looked at her, he saw her step forward toward the hole. And she, he hears her. She says, one, two. And he's sure she's going to jump. So he dashes over to pull her back to safety. But before he can do that, he slips. And, and he's the one that falls over into the hole. Well, to his surprise, he's not the first one this has happened to. It's like a couple of other guys in the hole. So he looks up, and now he sees the lady looking down again. And she says, one, two, three. <laughs> so trust me, each of our journeys will have its share of potholes. And the challenge in life is not avoiding all the potholes. That's impossible. Life's great challenge is recovering when you found yourself in a deep one and then by God's grace, finishing well. This is what Caleb did. He found himself in a 40-year-long pothole. But by God's grace, he finished well. Dr. Bobby Clinton, who was for many years a professor at Fuller Seminary, he also served on the board of directors of one of the ministries that I worked for and became, I became personal friends with him during those years. He devoted his life to studying Christian leaders. And over the years, he and his students, like a good professor, made most of his, his students do most of the work, he and his students did hundreds of biographical studies of leaders from the Bible and from church history. And sadly, Bobby Clinton concluded that few Christian leaders actually finish well, certainly less than a quarter. And he believed if we actually had more data available about the latter seasons of their life, that number might actually be less than 10%. Now, my guess is that some of these Christian leaders who didn't finish well were not wholeheartedly devoted to following God through the entirety of their lives. Somewhere along the way, they lost sight of God. They, they made choices apart from God's best. But Caleb stands as one of the biblical characters who did finish well. And in this passage, we catch a glimpse of his enduring trust in God. Look at what that 85-year-old said in verse 12, looking at this again. He says, Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there, and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. At 85, Caleb is still ready for big challenges in life. Look at what he says. Where are those Anakites? You know, I will drive them out. 
Now, some people would say this is just evidence that Caleb had grown a little bit senile by this point, right? An 85-year-old thinking he's going to drive off some powerful enemies, they would say that desert sun was hotter than we thought. You know, it cooked something up here in Caleb's cranium. I don't think this is evidence of senility. I don't even think it's evidence of being overly self-confident. Look at how this I will statement is bracketed. Caleb says, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out. Just as he said. You see, at 85 years old, Caleb's confidence is still centered in the Lord. He's still hanging on to God's promises even after having spent 40 years in the desert. That is a picture of finishing well. Now, what do we learn from this guy? How does Caleb's faith speak to our situations? I kind of doubt that any of us today are looking to drive some Anakites out of our neighborhoods. Anybody having troubles with Anakites? Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure. I live in Highlands Ranch. We have covenants, so I don't think we let Anakites in. Okay, so wouldn't be an issue for me. Look, Caleb was facing very different problems than we face today. But I still think there's much to learn from his perspective and his faith. Here's the way I would kind of make this relevant to our own lives. Think about it this way. If Caleb today was facing the problems and the circumstances that maybe you're facing in life, and if he was talking to Joshua, what might he have said? But the Lord helping me, and then what kind of statement might have followed if Caleb were standing in your shoes? I think this text is calling each of us to wrestle with a question. And here's how I would put the question. How will you choose to face the challenging circumstances in your life? All of us are going to face challenging circumstances. Really, the only choice we have is how will we choose to face them? And I think what this passage of Scripture is, is bringing out to us is to ask the question, how should the promises of God's Word, how should the character of God affect how we look at and respond to the problems we face in life? So I want to encourage each of you, maybe sometime this week, to think about your own life. Maybe the problems are really clear and they're just right before you. Maybe you can thank God that you're a good place, but certainly I imagine most of us can look back and think about problems we have experienced. But I would encourage you then to ask God, ask the Spirit of God, what, what promises, Lord, have you spoken in your word that I can hang on to, that are relevant to what I'm facing? What is it about you, God, that you've revealed to be true in the Scripture? Or what have I experienced to be true in my own life? Allow God the opportunity to kind of build those resources to fortify you in faith so that you can move into those problems, not without God, not 
in fear, but with God and with the kind of confidence and faith we see in Caleb. Caleb yielded his life to God. He was wholeheartedly devoted to following God. And my hope is that Caleb's brand of faith will inspire each of us to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this example of this man named Caleb, the faith that we see in him. And we know ultimately it wasn't about Caleb's confidence that Caleb was an optimist when others weren't. This was centered, Lord, in who you are, in your goodness, in your power, in your faithfulness to your own word. So, Lord, our prayer is not that we would focus on ourselves, self-improvement, not that we would focus on problems and challenges, but lift our eyes Help us to gain a clearer picture of the kind of God you are, the promises you've made to us. And help us, Lord, to be like Caleb, to yield ourselves, to follow you wholeheartedly to the very end of our lives. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.